Scott Hanselman is a developer and the host of several software podcasts, including Hansel Minutes and This Developer's Life. Scott Hanselman, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me on. You started Hansel Minutes in 2005. At that time, I had not written a single line of code. What were the important technologies around that time? Uh, Wow, 2005. So 10 years ago, uh, Visual Studio 2005 had come out. They were just coming out with .NET 2. Java was on Java 5? I was doing, let me think, I was doing Java in 97 at Nike. I'm trying to think, 10 years ago, I mean, it's mostly, it was the beginning of the managed runtime kind of world, right? I mean, people were thinking about jitters and garbage collectors and generational garbage collectors. That was about what was coming along. It was, I was an enterprise software developer. And how has the world of software development changed since that time? Or you could maybe even just speak to enterprise software development. I mean, there's been so much development and so much growth and change since then. So 10 years ago, I was at a place called Carillion that got bought by CheckFree. If you're familiar with CheckFree, they, if you ever used like Microsoft Money or QuickBooks or something like that, so those would download software uh, they would download a, a payload called OFX, which was the Open Financial Exchange, uh, and it was basically uh, you know getting your balances and stuff from the back end. So I worked in retail, online banking, and I was installing these big, boring you know financial services systems in banks all over the place, and uh, telling a bank in 2005, "Hey, you should be thinking about open source." was the challenge of the day, right? Like right now, why are you not using open source is a reasonable thing to say. But back then it was it was just the the you couldn't they just looked at you like you're an idiot. Like why would you open source? It's funny it's funny because because I listen to a lot of your uh back catalog episodes and like there's always these funny anecdotes where it's like you're consulting with a bank and X happens. Well yeah that's because so I worked at Carillion as the chief architect for seven years. Um, and then before that, I was a consultant for six years. So I worked for, for, for the first six, seven years of my career, I was doing um, like product catalogs, like retail product catalogs. So uh, gear.com, which became overstock.com and 800.com that became Best Buy. And that was all like retail product. So my whole thing, my whole life then was shopping carts and product catalogs and caching. And then I went to work in banking, and then it was all about retail banking and check imaging, and and I was the chair of the OFX consortium for a while, so it was about standards and XML. And then I went to work. But the, the thing that got me into open source and then ultimately got me at Microsoft was the um, introducing open source into large banks and introducing continuous integration into Corellian. So when I started there in... So this is 2000, 2007. When I started there in around 2000, 2001, uh, when .NET was just getting started, we, uh, we added things like unit testing. So like NUnit was coming up. Um, CruiseControl.net from ThoughtWorks was doing continuous integration um, on, um, on .NET, which was revolutionary, you know, 15 years ago. And, uh, and then also continuous deployment, the, like the, the crowning thing that we accomplished at Carillion uh, that I felt proud of was the build popped a virtual machine out the other end. 
So, you know, we think about how simple that is now, right? You have a Docker container that is the, that is the result of your build, the build artifact. 15 years ago, we popped a VMware VM out of the side of the build. And this was significant because then it meant that a salesperson could grab the virtual machine and load it on their laptop and then do a demo of the product with daily builds. Yeah, it's so funny because the more things change, the more they stay the same. We did uh, a, a <laughs> bunch of shows about DevOps, and mm. it sounds like what you just described, it, it sounds a lot like DevOps, um, at well, least from... So, yeah, I don't want to like build the uh, the reputation of being like the, the angry old programmer type, but... <laughs> but when when a um when a developer who is in their 20s starts to feel frustrated with an uh, perhaps an older developer like me not being impressed with whatever they've accomplished around you know basics of 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 devops it tends to be because 15 20 years ago we were doing it you know what i mean now i'm not saying that what what they're doing now isn't amazing it is it's better it's clearly a it's clearly a refinement of the process you know what i mean like there's there's but they, but they need to remember that they're standing on the shoulders of giants because what i was doing was inspired by people that were doing software in the 80s you know what i mean and vice you know and, and all the way back so the philosophical stuff around devops that you hear do you think this is stuff that's just been around forever and it's just been rebranded uh well i think i don't want i don't want to diminish their accomplishments you know the current okay. modern accomplishments but yeah. what i do want to say is that to, I think that the term DevOps is the um, is the label that we put on a series of best practices around things that we've been trying to accomplish and, and label for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And mm. I think it's great. It's the formalization that there's a plan here and uh, we, uh, we, we, now, we now know kind of what it takes to, uh, to get the work done. So when you started Hansel Minutes, what was your goal for the show? Um, what was my goal for the show? I mean, the subtitle um, of the show is Fresh Air for Developers. So was, did, was that something that evolved over time, or was that what it was originally? It originally was more like car talk, um, ah. to use a national public radio. Like, all of my shows are modeled after national public radio. So... You know, this developer's life is clearly like this American life. Hansel Minutes was trying to be like Charlie Rose or Fresh Air or uh, Science Friday. I felt that there were too many podcasts that were, for lack of a better word, and, 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 and not ironically, two dudes on Skype. You know, and by two dudes on Skype, I mean a number of things. I mean poor audio quality. Of course, we neither of us have that because we're using professional mics and editing. Uh, I mean, two regular white guys on Skype just chatting it up, which means not a diverse audience, not a representative audience, and a lot of people aren't getting heard. And then I mean, uh, just chatting it up, like, "Hey, how's it going? What's going on?" And, uh, there, <laughs> you, you, you've listened to podcasts where you got to fast forward eight, nine minutes in before the actual meet happens. Mm -hmm. So the joke was that Hansel minutes. Every minute counted, and I, I time boxed the show to 30 minutes, you know? There's some podcasts out there that are basically just two people chatting for two freaking hours, and that might yeah. be great if your uh, commute is two hours long, but who has the time, right? So it was meant to be laser-focused, have lots of diverse voices, and uh, when I say diversity, I don't just mean color and gender. 
Uh, I mean, topics like I might work for Microsoft, but you can scroll through my archives and I can absolutely guarantee that the show is non-denominational in its choice of technology. Mm -hmm. So I felt I did it because I felt that there wasn't a show that did that yet so at the with, time. With that desire for uh, dense, uh, dense material, like densely just dense, not just in like a technical sense, but it's just dense in terms of like all of it is stuff you want to hear. It's stuff you want to sink mm -hmm. your teeth into. How do you do that from a process point of view? Do you just prepare a ton or do you just think a lot about it? What are your, do you have any tactics about, about uh, conducting shows? So I conduct my shows the same way that I conduct my technical presentations. Um, I chop them up into sections. Uh, so I do a 30-minute show. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go and record a show this afternoon at the Linux Foundation with uh, a woman named Stacy Kirk, and we're going to talk about Node and QA and testing and the evolution of testing in the space. And uh, we, you know, she was like, what are we going to talk about? And I didn't want to just ramble for 30 minutes, so I said – Give me six bullet points about the things that you care about and think about them in the context of five minutes per bullet point, right? 30 minutes. And then I will do the same. And then the ones that intersect, the three or four things that we both pick that happen to be the same thing, that'll be the meat of the conversation. That'll so you be ask the, her to share those with you? Yeah, so points. she shares me six bullet points oh. and I shared her six bullet points. And then three of them intersected meaning we both picked the same things, right? Yeah. So those become the middle part of the bell curve, right? You imagine the story arc. Yeah. So the the things we both want to talk about are in the middle part, and the stuff that I want to talk about is front-loaded, and then the stuff that she wants to talk about is at the end, and that way her voice gets heard, and we end on hearing the things that she cares the most about, and the middle part is the stuff that we're both passionate about. That is such a great piece of advice. I'm, I think I'm going to start doing that. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the Terry Gross, Charlie Rose mm -hmm. angle on your show. Uh, I grew up listening to Terry Gross and, and Charlie Rose and watching them and studying them. And you know, I didn't at that point, I didn't know I was going to start doing podcasting. But, you know, I would find these people extremely compelling. What do you think Terry Gross and Charlie Rose do so well that made them kind of what people used to, well, people still talk about them as kind of the gold standard of mm -hmm. interviewing people. Um, I think that they lead both the audience and the, 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 in the person that they are interviewing, the interviewee, on a, on a journey, and they tell a story. So they're, they're kind of managing kind of three things all at once, right? They're getting what they want out of it. They're getting the information that they personally want to hear. They're making sure that the person who's being interviewed gets to say, you know, whatever their message is, whatever they're, they might be plugging something or they might be, you know, have something that the, a passion project. Uh, but then they're also trying to put it into a, like a larger narrative. And what's interesting about it is that they're doing it all at the same time. The only difference, I think, between Terry Gross's stuff and, and ours, uh, presumably, I'm presuming for you, is that we don't have a staff of editors and, and people to go and research things. Mm. Uh, so she does have the, the uh, luxury of being able to go and edit the stuff. And uh, there have been a number of, if I understand correctly, her show is about twice as long as we listen to, and they cut out the boring bits. 
Mm, yeah. I don't do that. Okay. I try to do my show in one take. Right. So there's a great episode of your show that you recorded with your dad. I was When I was preparing for this show, I actually searched for, like, what are the best episodes of Hanselman's? Because I haven't listened to all of your episodes. And one that came up was this interview with your dad. And it was really interesting because you weren't exactly talking about tech, but you kind of were talking about how you evolved as a person. Um, so how do you balance the technical aspects and the biographical aspects of your show? Do you Do you just think of that episode as, like, a total edge case or... Or do you like to weave in biographical elements of your life? Um, well, I mean, everyone's experience is colored by who they are. And um, I think that technical topics, you can use analogies and stories that someone tells, whether they be war stories or whatever, need someone, uh, need, need a personal touch. And when you weave in a, uh, you know, like, you're, you know, like People Magazine or Us Magazine, and they're like, you know, stars are just like us. And it's like a picture of Brad Pitt <laughs> going into like Whole Foods. Like what? Brad Pitt shops at Whole Foods? Like I saw a picture literally yesterday, uh, Michelle Obama uh, snuck into a Target and was shopping. And like, of course she does. She wants to go to Target. Like that, why wouldn't she go to Target? Everyone's like freaking out. I can't believe she goes to Target. But everyone does. Um, when you add in that personal touch it's just a reminder that we're all human right so like i i met um martin fowler right everyone knows martin fowler mm -hmm. and uh i have a feeling martin fowler doesn't really want to uh talk about being martin fowler all the time right <laughs> so you know when i met him at a conference and i was you know he looked pretty bored and he looked like he wasn't interested in being martin fowler that day so i was like yeah let's hey you want to go get some tacos and he's like yeah Let's get out of here. And we just like went up the street to Chipotle and hung out and talked about gardening and all sorts of random stuff. Like topics like that, talking to people like that about their lives and finding the right balance between the personal and the technical uh, has so far been a decent uh, a decent balance. And so, so another thing is like, you know, I feel like we're kind of – maybe this has always been the case, but I feel like we're entering a time where – uh, the technical is increasingly intersecting with the broader culture. Like the the, the broader culture, there's an increased conversation about tech. I, I at least in my impression. Um, and you know, you you recently did a show, uh, an episode about the show Minority Report, and you had a futurist mm -hmm. from the MIT Media Lab who is a consultant on Minority Report. And this episode was super interesting because it was it wasn't exactly about software development, but it was. It, it was certainly bordered on the idea of software engineering because you're talking about uh, what software would actually look like in in the not totally too distant future, maybe 50, 50 to 100 years out. Um, but, you know, so it's interesting because, like, I feel there's so many cultural elements that you could explore with with Hansel Minutes, and, and I certainly feel like I could explore them on software engineering daily. But, you know, I'm, I feel like I need to, to temper that I feel like I can't co totally go into culture too much because I need to stick to my core audience of talking about software engineering. So do you do you feel like you um, like maybe you need to uh, restrain going into talking about broader cultural stuff some or or do you feel like you have um, a, a, like a lot of latitude at this point? 
Well, I mean, you just said that you felt the need to stay on a particular topic, but it's your show, right? You don't have a staff. There's no one that you have to keep on staff to pay their mortgage. There's no reason other than the fact that you, you know, you named the show that you need to keep it doing that. So no, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not going to like turn the show into sports or I'm not going to (laughs) turn, turn the show into reviews of TV shows because that would be a different show. So I've, I've got other shows, right? Like I made a show called Ratchet and the Geek that was just me and my friend talking about Scandal, uh, which is a really great TV show. And then that turned into movie reviews and gadget reviews. And it's, you know, it's a great, great little show. Um, but like I'm looking at my show here, I did a, I did one that was really popular last month on um, a gentleman who worked for Ocean Software and did SID music on the Commodore 64, you know, we didn't talk too much about software engineering, but it was awesome, right? So, like the the point is that awesome is the is the goal, right? That's the that's if if it's an awesome topic, like how can I not want to talk to the guy that works on Minority Report? You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Like how, how can you not? Like, and I did a, one of my most favorite shows uh, was with uh, Keishal Rogers, and she talked about systems thinking and how we need to stop teaching kids how to code and start teaching kids how to think. Again, not explicitly about software engineering, but a, a vital topic. So, so why not, right? Yeah, definitely. So I, I was browsing your blog and I saw a comment from 2006 from Jeff Atwood, who is uh, mm-hmm. heavily involved in Stack Overflow. And he said that he couldn't imagine the prominence of podcasts lasting for very long. This was, of course, in 2006. Oh, and he, uh, you can go back farther and find me complaining about what a waste of time podcasts are. I saw that. It was pretty yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, in some sense, he was actually right because there was this boom and bust of podcasts. But now they're kind of having this second wind. What do you think is... Uh, uh, what do you think is leading to this this second wind of podcasts that we're having right now? Uh, I think that we've finally figured out how to tell a story. And we finally figured out that two dudes on Skype doesn't necessarily work. Um, and a narrative required. If you look at shows like Criminal and uh, Serial, you know, and some of the stuff that Alex Bloomberg is doing at Gimlet Media uh, with shows like Reply All. Uh, People, people can can enjoy listening to it. It's 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 actually deferred radio, uh, as opposed to just you know talking and recording it and putting it in an RSS feed. Right, and and how big do you think it's going to get? Like I, I was just in New York and I uh, spoke with some people from these different po- big podcasting companies like Acast and Midroll and Panoply, um, and New York is kind of this hub of the podcast industry. So it was interesting getting a window into that. But like, what do you see as the future? How optimistic about uh, about the future of podcasting are you? Um, I honestly haven't thought about it that much. You know, uh, I am not, I am not, this will sound bad, but I'm not interested in the future of podcasting. I'm interested in putting out a good show every every week. And I am now that I've done 500 shows, I can't stop, right? Because I'm on a roll. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. So, so if the lo- bottom dropped out of the podcasting industry, maybe then I would stop. <laughs> right. So, I mean, let, let's talk some about software. Um, you're a principal program manager at Microsoft, and you've been there for eight years. And there have been a number of changes at Microsoft recently, like the open sourcing of .NET 
What are the most salient changes that you are seeing at Microsoft these days? Um, one of the jokes that I like to tell because it's true is uh, it's kind of like we're all like it's kind of like the stormtroopers are running the Death Star, and like you know Darth Vader has left, and uh, now we just don't want to accidentally push the wrong button and like blow up Alderaan. You know, like we know that we are on the Death Star and we know that it has a lot of power and like there's a lot of advanced technology here and we're just stormtroopers. We don't know what the heck we're doing. So just don't push that button and, you know, blow something up. So, you know, when the inmates are running the asylum like that, uh, there's a little bit of disorganization. But I've also said that we're not nearly as organized as we would need to be to be as evil as people think we are. (laughs) You know, it would require some some bit of effort. Uh, to be to be as evil as we used to be, I think it was largely just truly being disorganized. Uh, that said, um, I think that uh, we are now selling compute. Okay, Microsoft sells compute time, so we're you know we're selling uh, for loops, and uh, if your for loop is in Node.js or in Go or whatever, we don't really care as long as it runs on Azure. Or it does, you know, or it's an Office 365 application on an iPhone or something like that. Do you think that the being in the compute business is uh, like a lower margin business than selling op- selling an operating system? Of course, it is. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The whole just, world is a low margin business right now. Like, name yeah. a business that isn't low margin other than other than I don't know podcasting. <laughs> yeah, pretty definitely. That's a good point. Everything is pennies, pennies on the work. You just got it's all about scale, right? Does that does that change the the culture and the product development strategy that you see at Microsoft? Um, I not I'm not quite at the I'm not quite at that level. I'm not that like high up. Um, but I will say that when we are sitting around strategizing about how to make things better, we are trying to say how can developers have great experiences and how can this how can this or that not suck is always the goal. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we're not sitting around thinking, you know, how can we, you know, how can we do something sneaky to make more people use our stuff? We're literally thinking, how can we make this nice so that people will use it? And we will, you know, we'll, we'll win quote unquote win based on uh, our, our, our own merits. So when you're, I mean, trying to differentiate the world of selling compute from, from other cloud service providers, what are the what are the things that you think about that that you can improve the develop the developer experience on? What do you think are the are the important levers to to tune? Um, I've always talked about happiness, and like we we talk about productivity way too much. I feel like Microsoft's always talking about productivity, and productivity had us dragging data grids over you know from the toolbox and stuff. I feel like uh, there's. Uh, we, we we need to we need to have been spending time and we need to spend more time about like delightful experiences like thing little things in the editor that just make you smile and uh, you know smart little features that make everything from file new project until you go and actually hit publish feel nice. Interesting. So w- one thing that, that I think has has changed uh, a lot in programming. Uh, s- s- particularly since the the time where when you started Hanselman it's is if you're a developer if you're like a a back end developer i mean i guess you've you've been full stack pretty much for the whole time but um the idea of back end has kind of 
expanded and proliferated into there's also like big data. So, you know, I think when when you started, there wasn't really this notion of having to build a big data architecture um, and understand all these different streaming platforms and Hadoop and stuff. As this field has grown in parallel with more traditional web development, have you kept up with it to the same extent that you kept up with web development? Um, I mean, I'm just struggling to keep up with everything, right? I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I mean, do you do do you perform big data development, or do you do you mostly stick to to web stuff? Um, my data is not that big, you know, I'm not doing work in the terabytes. Uh, I've talked to people who are, but the, the data that I was doing, even when I was doing banking was only in the hundreds of gigs. So I don't know what, at what point big data becomes big data. You know, like I've, mm. I've got the basics of Hadoop and things like that done, but no, my, my general job is not a big data job. Hmm. What, uh, what are the types of problems that you, that you encounter day to day in your work? Uh, most of the things that I'm worried about right now are cross-platform. So like when I get off the phone with you, I'm going to go to the Linux Foundation and do some demos on Azure uh, running on Ubuntu. So uh, thinking about cross-platform has been a big part of what I've been doing. Mm, interesting. So um, I'd like to talk some about the things that you discuss on your show, This Developer's Life, because I'm, I'm a, a big fan of that show. And um, the titles of This Developer's Life are very succinct, but it has an, that succinctness has an inverse relationship with how deep each topic is. So I'd like to go through some well, of the- I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. We actually, <laughs> uh, Rob Connery, my partner, and I uh, actually, uh, we don't start recording a show until we come up with the word that describes the show. And then that word is where we hang all the content of the show on. Right. And so like each of these titles has almost like infinite depth. Um, I didn't know that anyone actually noticed that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, okay. But I'd like to go through some of these titles because I'd like to hear what comes to mind when you hear these words. So, so for example, there's one episode that's titled Audacity. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Audacity? Um, the, uh, gosh, I mean, the, the word is the word, right? I mean, but just the idea that one, you know, like, who do you think you are? I think is when I think about audacity and someone, when someone does something and it's like, wow, I can't believe that they, they, they had the, you know, the, the chutzpah to, to do that. I suppose we probably could have called it chutzpah if, uh, if that worked. And how does that pertain to developers? Um, well, in this case, it's building stuff that uh, they have no business building, you know, stuff that, you know, like, when was the last time you saw some software that completely blew your mind? Like, <laughs> like the, when I saw um, Word Lens, that's the thing where you hold your camera up to a, to a sign or a menu that's written in a foreign language, and it replaces the words in that foreign language in the screen with it written in your language, but maintains the font and color. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like I see audacious software every day. Oh, I don't, know. I don't know about that, but what's some examples? Uh, let's see. Um, oh gosh, I mean, all I would have to do is go to Hacker News and like look at the top five links, and there's always something there. Um, but I, I guess let's see. Nothing. I'm talking about stuff where it's just like, whoa! Like I, I wouldn't like I would have been afraid to have suggested that as an idea of something that we could have done. Um. Yeah. Um, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. Let's see. Like, like an example. Like, um, an example was uh, 
what uh, Miguel de Acasa and the team at Mono did, right? A lot of people don't realize that Mono was originally supposed to be uh, – that, that team was supposed to create a mail client. They felt there was no decent mail client mm. for, for Linux. And they said, well, gosh, you know, we want to write a mail client. What are we going to write it in? You know, I don't really want to write it in C. You know, hey, C Sharp's kind of cool. Maybe we could, uh, you know, write a, you know, write a runtime, basically write an open source version of .NET, and then we'll write our mail client. I mean, like, think about that. That's insane. Yeah. Right? I mean, but I, that they did it anyway. I would say that, that React.js and, and Elm are two things that come to mind of audacious recent technologies. About which? I'm sorry? React.js and Elm. Have you heard of the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I've heard about React.js, but okay. you said Elm? El, the Elm programming language? Oh, when you say Elm, I think about the mail client and the text from <laughs> 1993. Sorry, I'm super old. No, that's fine. I'm like, uh, Elm? Like Pico? Is that related to Pico? And Sorry. No, yeah, you should check it out if you haven't, if you haven't seen it. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, okay, another title is Being Mean. What does being mean uh, mean in the context of a developer? Oh, well, I feel that uh, developers sometimes get away with being antisocial more than other industries. You know, other industries don't typically, basically like developers and surgeons basically are the people who get to be jerks. And I don't think that that's okay. Um, I think that uh, Linus Torvald's genius that he may be, or, um, you know, Stephen Wolfram from Mathematica, you know, are demonstrably geniuses, but... Uh, why do they also need to be, you know, dicks? Um, I apologize for saying that on your podcast. Um, no, I mean, I, I interviewed... There's just no reason for it. I interviewed Stephen Wolfram. I, I didn't think was he, he... Was uh, he, you know, like there's this joke about who is going to uh, achieve self-awareness first, you know, uh, Wolfram <laughs> Alpha or Wolfram Stephen? Um, okay, final thing. Education. What about the title Education. Um, that is about the continuing education, continuing uh, development, continuing personal development, the importance of, of living, uh, living a life of continuous improvement. And, and I've heard you say that you think of yourself as an educator. How has that uh, identity evolved? Um, Have you so, always yeah. thought of yourself as an educator? Uh, yeah, I think, I, I think so. I was an adjunct professor for a while and um, taught at a state school. And I don't like the term evangelist. Uh, I'm not an evangelist, by the way. I'm a program manager. I don't work in, in marketing. But because I have such a, a, a broad and diverse set of topics, um, people sometimes think that I'm like Microsoft's evangelist. And evangelism uh, evokes, in my opinion, the, the, the crusades. <clears throat> and the idea that you know that you whoever you are need to be converted to our way of thinking, um, I think that a teacher is not trying to convert you to their way of thinking. They are trying to get you to think and then make your own decision. Mm. So that's why I decided that. Interesting. So um, as we begin to close off, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the the changing open source identity uh, of Microsoft. And uh, while I was looking for audacious technologies, like I said. I, I opened up Hacker News, and um, near the top is an article called OpenSource.net one year later. Mm-hmm. Um, what what has been the impact? I mean, one year later, if I read this article, what kinds of things am I going to see? 
first you're going to see that something like 12% of .NET open source, and when I say .NET, we mean like the CLR, the core framework, the, the core bits of .NET are um, being contributed by external folks. And then you might think to yourself, gosh, 12% doesn't seem like a lot. But if you compare it to other projects, like you know your Firefoxes and things like that, uh, you'll realize that people have an unrealistic expectation of uh, the the kind of democracy and the meritocracy of all of these things. Like, how many people do you think are creating Wikipedia, right? There's probably a couple of hundred. Like, there's billions of us out there in the world using it, but there's probably only a couple of hundred of core people that are, like, on Wikipedia all the time. You mm. know what I mean? So, 12%, as, as, it, as it turns out, is a pretty big number around open source. So, um you know, as far as like contributors versus core people. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Uh, I don't think that means we've succeeded. I think it means though that the, it is clear that effort is being, that is being made, you know? Mm-hmm. Are there any other uh, open source efforts at Microsoft that you can touch on? There's a million. Uh, go to dotnet.github.io and we've got lists and lists of projects. There's a couple hundred. Uh, in fact, I just open sourced uh Open Live Writer, uh, Windows Live Writer, which was a blogging tool that was very popular. Uh, we worked with a team of about a dozen people, and uh, we actually open sourced that about an hour ago. Oh. And that's actually not just a developer thing. That's just a piece of Windows software that one would think was abandoned. And what was great about this was that uh, we were able to bring it out of the Windows you know, group it's software that's almost 15 years old, 10, 15 years old, and give it a new life. We added a new installer, and it auto-updates. It's pretty fantastic. That's great. Okay, well, so my final question, what is the biggest piece of advice that you can give to developers? Um, what is the biggest piece of advice that I could give to developers? Be patient. Uh, and I mean that in being patient with yourself, being patient with your learning process, being patient with other people. Just breathe and take a break and walk away and then chill out. Well, that's great. Uh, Scott Hanselman, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. I'm a huge fan of your podcasts, and uh, uh, I'll keep listening in the future. All right. Catch you all later. <laughs>